BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Listening to the Strangeology Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Warren, and this is your place to explore the world of weird from cryptids and creatures to UFOs, aliens, the paranormal, forbidden knowledge, conspiracies, and more. All right, welcome back to the show and welcome to any new listeners out there. I got to give a big thanks to everyone out there who listened to my last episode, which was all about the mud flood and the Tartaria theory. And if you haven't listened to it yet, definitely check it out. It's a doozy. (laughs) And it shattered first day release download records for the show, which is wild. Uh, So I hope you all enjoyed it. And as always, I'm trying to bring you guys the, the best, most interesting stuff to learn about in the Fordian world. And uh, it was a topic I wanted to cover for quite a while. It's a weird one. Um, But yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. And if you haven't listened to it, uh, go check it out if you haven't. All right. So also today's episode is out earlier than expected. Usually, you know, I'm on the biweekly schedule as best as I can. But since the last episode was a week late, I wanted to make up for it and get this one out early for everybody. Uh, I'm hoping at some point, you know, to get on the weekly kind of schedule, but we'll (laughs) see how that goes with everything else that's always going on with strangeology and life stuff. So (laughs) I I like to make sure that I'm thorough with my research episodes and also uh, for my interview-based episodes like today that I've got an interesting guest to chat with and that I've made sure that uh, I've checked out some of their stuff and and I have an idea of what they're all about before they come on the show. Uh, So that way we're not... uh, we're, we're not going in blind, you know? 
So I don't have uh, too many updates uh, other than I'll be at the Sasquatch Festival in Whitehall, New York this weekend, uh, Saturday, September 24th. The event happens at the Waterfront Park and it's going from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. The Sasquatch Calling Contest uh, where people are signing up and they're going to do their best like Bigfoot call. Like if you've watched Finding Bigfoot um, or Expedition Bigfoot and stuff like that, where people just yell out into the darkness to see if they can get a response, it's going to be that kind of thing. Um, so that starts at 5 p.m. and goes to the end of the event. And uh, someone's going to, you know, <laughs> be crowned king of the Bigfoot calling king or queen. Right. Uh, so it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, there's something like 70 vendors or so along with myself that are going to be uh, selling merch. We're going to have Carrick from Crash Course Cryptozoology. Uh, Emily from the Forest Fleur is going to be there as well as Mike from Where's My Sage. Uh, so it's going to be a great time. And if you're in the area or even within driving distance, definitely uh, it's an event you want to come out and hang out at. So hope to see you there. And for October, which is just around the corner, I've got some spooky and weird interviews coming up. Uh, so definitely stay tuned for those. And I'm also planning on working on uh, some research episode material uh, that's, you know, in the paranormal Halloween-y inspired <laughs> themes. So uh, stay tuned for that. And all right. So why don't we just get into today's episode? So for this one, I had the privilege of getting to speak with Lyle Blackburn, who I've wanted to have on the show for some time. He's a pretty prolific member of the community. He's a musician like myself. He's done a lot of cool stuff. And we had an awesome conversation about everything he gets into within the world of cryptozoology and the paranormal and what he's been up to with new projects. So I think you're going to like this one. Why don't we just get right into it? All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm stoked because I have a very special guest for this episode, the one and only Lyle Blackburn. And we're going to talk about cryptids, the paranormal, and all things strange. It, Lyle is an author, a researcher, journalist, producer, adventurer, and a rock and roller based out of Texas. He's written books like The Beast of Boggy Creek, Sinister Swamps. He's narrated and produced documentaries like The Mothman of Point Pleasant, and he's also been on shows like The Unexplained, Finding Bigfoot, Monsters and Mysteries in America. And he's also the founder and the frontman for the band Ghoul Town. So, hey, Lyle, thank you so much for uh, hanging out today. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. After, after all that long list, do we have time for the show? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I suppose I always uh, over prepare when I have guests on the show because I like to I like to know who I'm talking about, talking about, talking to. And yeah, you've got a pretty extensive resume of all the stuff that you've done. Uh, was there a moment in your life where you were like, this is it? this is what I want to do with cryptozoology and the paranormal. 
Um, I don't know that there was ever really a moment where I consciously decided, you know, to pursue that in any serious fashion. It was just something that was kind of, um, it, 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 it was just in me, I guess, you know, when I, when I was young, as far back as I can remember, I loved monster movies and, you know, monsters and Frankenstein and Wolfman. And, and then I, about around third grade, I got a book called Strange But True. And it had stories of Yeti, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster. And, and now I'm reading what I thought, oh, wow, these things might exist in real life. You know, this was a step up from masks and movies. Um, and, you know, it just, it, it, not only the monster aspect, but just the mystery of something to solve, that just really got me. And so, um, you know, just something I loved as a child and just sort of uh, followed and read and watched documentaries. And then when I wrote The Beast of Boggy Creek, it was just literally because I wanted to explore more about the legend of Boggy Creek Bigfoot case and never really thought of it as I'm going to write this book and sell this book. It's more like, well, I might as well write a book if if I'm going to, to research it. And that's kind of how it started. Gotcha. That's awesome. Yeah. I feel like, you know, a lot of us start in a, uh, a similar fashion where, you know, it's just this innate desire to explore the unknown. Um, so earlier this year, you started your own podcast, uh, Monster Bizarro. Uh, did I get that right? <laughs> Monstro Bizarro. Uh, Monstro yeah. Bizarro. That's right. <laughs> I get that mixed up. Sometimes. Strangeology was already taken, so I had to use that. Oh, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot no, of... Which, <laughs> which is a, funny yeah. because, you know, at this late point when starting a podcast, you know, I'd think of these cool names and I'd search and it was literally already a podcast or it was one I was already on or had been on. It's like, man, there's a lot. Um, so I went with my Monstro Bizarro, which was a column I had in the horror magazine uh, rumor. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a fun name. And yeah, there's a lot of other ology names in like the 40 and uh, realm of podcasting and videos and stuff. You know, it's, it's kind of like the, the worst part about when you do a project is naming it. I found like anytime you're in a band or doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh yeah. Yeah. How, how have you been, uh, liking the podcasting, uh, aspect so far? Is, has it been enjoyable for you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like it pretty well. Um, you know, it's, it's something that people have been asking me about forever and I just, had literally no time I already you know have no time and then I'm like how could I do a podcast and uh you know finally I was like you know that's just a format that I could have an impact on but I did not I didn't want to do something that was kind of the same old thing you know where it's me interviewing people and and so forth I'm like what could I do that's different and I kind of thought about the fact that I had narrated quite a bit of the small town monsters documentary. So I kind of did the voice thing, you know, using my narrator voice. And, and uh, I thought, well, maybe I could do something more like an audio production. That's sort of like along those lines, it just doesn't have the visual and you can listen to them wherever you are. And so that's kind of the way I did it. So the fun part about it has been that it is more of a production where I'm adding in, dramatizations and audio um, effects and, and 
you know, background music and stuff. So it, you know, while it's obviously, as you know, no matter what kind of podcast you're doing, it takes time to do it, but it's, it's fun to, to make these. Yeah, for sure. And, um, yeah, the, the production quality is definitely top notch for your show. It reminds me of listening to, you know, the old radio broadcast dramas back in the day and, uh, it's just super fun. So, uh, for listeners out there, if you haven't checked out Monstro Bizarro, definitely do. And I'll, uh, leave a link in the show notes for that. Uh, so I wanted to talk about this new book that you released, Texas Bigfoot. Can you, uh, can you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. That just literally got that off the door. Um, actually a little early. Um, and it, that's a book, you know, that I feel like I, I should write and, and probably should have already written it. But, uh, you know, that's the way things develop. Um, being from Texas and being that there is a, a long history of Bigfoot sightings um, in Texas and, you know, really a surprising history, a surprising amount, because a lot of people who, you know, maybe know Bigfoot casually don't realize that their sightings, you know, outside of the Pacific Northwest, West, much less a place like Texas, where people really kind of have an image of that uh, stereotypical cowboy image of ranches and wide open spaces. And certainly we have that, but in the eastern portion of the state, it is heavily forested and, and it's called the Piney Woods. And then you know, down to the Gulf Coast area where it's there's swampy areas, there's huge river systems. And, uh, you know, that kind of bleeds over into Arkansas and Louisiana, where all that collective area has just tons of Bigfoot sightings and, and very credible Bigfoot sightings. And so basically over the years, you know, it's been something that I've collected reports i've collected old newspaper articles i've talked to a lot of my buddies who have been researching in this some cases longer than me and just sort of filing away the the chronology and the history of everything that's texas bigfoot and finally just sort of like okay i've got a window here i've got all the the components so i just sat down and and got that thing written that's great. That's great. Um, were there any uh, standout um, encounter stories uh, for you that that uh, just kind of made things a little bit more like, yeah, there's something out there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was there was quite a few, you know, that, you know, were up and above just the run of the mill. I saw it run across the road type thing. Um and uh you know some some first person witnesses that i had the privilege of interviewing and in some cases kind of getting to know over the years even to where you know they they had described an encounter that was more lengthy you know that uh in one case a, a young man was on the sabine river which is what that separates uh louisiana and texas on the eastern border and, you know, he just kind of came up on this thing that was just standing there and it's just looking at him and he's looking at it and he's trying to get his mind around. Is this a human, a feral human or what, you know, some sort of an escaped uh, ape? 
And the fact that he's in Texas, and this is kind of in a time back in the 80s when you don't think about as much about Bigfoot or, and, you know, the description of, of these where people see them, fair, you know, clearly and from, you know, more than um, 30 seconds or something where they can describe it. And there's there's been several of those, especially in the eastern portion where um, these descriptions are just mind boggling. And I've included you know, all that in the book, of course, is sort of the standout uh, examples. But there was also what really surprised me most about doing this research was actual numbers of sightings that were in the central and western portions of Texas, because if you go from east to west, it sort of transitions from what we would think of Bigfoot country with the big pine trees and the thick woods, swampy areas to sort of a the black, you know, blackland prairie, just mesquite trees and more open areas. And then over, you know, by the time you get to El Paso in the West, it's like a desert. Right. But there were yeah. cases like uh, the Holly Hymn and um, the Horizon City Monster and these others that were kind of given names because they were in the newspaper, but essentially Bigfoot creatures over in that central and western area. And these were, I mean, this wasn't something where it's like a, one person saw something run across the road. This was multiple people, numerous people, you know, over a period of two or three weeks or something, seeing these things. And of course, that generated the the media coverage. But I found those to be pretty credible. I mean, these people saw something and it was in a place that is kind of unexpected, you know, uh, as far as what we kind of generally think of as Bigfoot territory. So those, those were super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You really don't think about like a desert type of, of Bigfoot. Um, and the further West you go, there's like the muggy on rim in Arizona, which has legends of uh, a hairy ape man, but then that's also like Ponderosa pine forest. So there's, you know, it's a little bit more squatchy out there, I guess. Um, but yeah, West Texas, that's uh, definitely pretty interesting that there's there's a number of uh, sightings out there. Wow. Um, now, you've you mentioned mentioned um, before about uh, Beast of Boggy Creek uh, or the Falk Monster. Um, was that kind of like one of your first introductions to um to the Bigfoot phenomena? Yeah, yeah, that was definitely, you know, after I'd gotten that book on, you know, just your basic Bigfoot and Yeti, um, somewhere after that, my parents, we were, we were in Arkansas, actually, which is, Falk is only about three hours from where I am in Texas, so it wasn't far away, but we were in Arkansas and some odd, uh, circumstances we went to a drive-in movie up there and it happened to be showing the legend of boggy creek which was released in 1972 and showed all throughout the 70s sort of in drive-ins and theaters and later on tv but th when i saw that i was like not only was the movie cool because it was to me it was like a horror movie meets actual real bigfoot case where there's yeah <laughs> witnesses and stuff you know and uh, but it was so close to where I lived that that's when I realized, OK, this, you know, th this might not be something that's just far away from Texas. You know, this is closer. And 
and the movie just because it was centered more around what I was familiar with and it was a small town just like I'd passed through many times my, my dad was a hunter so we went as far back as I mean I was three years old going bow hunting with him and we'd pass through these creepy small towns you know en route to the hunting lease and Falk was just kind of like that so I was very familiar with with that so it was something that just had all the ingredients to to capture my imagination and to, to at that time and then later when I decided I wanted to write a book it was like what is my favorite subject and it was literally that and I'm like what I want to know the facts behind what you see in the movie and how the how was that movie made and what effect did it have on people so that's kind of really was the catalyst yeah, yeah, it's definitely um, a seminal movie for sure. I actually didn't see it until for the first time uh, in my life until like last year. I decided I finally needed to sit down and watch it. You know, like I grew up watching all all the old shows like Monster Quest and Finding Bigfoot and even stuff back in the '90s on like Discovery Channel and stuff. But yeah, <laughs> right, it's definitely something that sticks with you, right? Um, do you have like a a favorite Bigfoot story beyond the Falk monster, or is that kind of it for you? Well, you know, in terms of just sort of classic Bigfoot stories, you know, I, I, I love the case of the Missouri monster, which I wrote a book called Momo strange case of the Missouri monster. That was another that was a little bit later where I got a book. It was called monsters of North America. And it had, it covered the um, led, you know, Legend of Boggy Creek, but it also talked about Momo, and it was this kind of a similar case in the early 1970s where this was not just a, a Bigfoot, but sort of a hairy, scary thing that you know, its hair over its face and its head was said to be bigger, and and it scared these kids, and then it set off this crazy amount of uh, sightings and. The, the police there organized posties and hunted up for it on this th area called Marzoff Hill that overlooked the little town in Missouri. And, you know, that was one that I just, again, was like, if that if a movie had been made about that, it would be just as famous as Boggy Creek, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, the Honey on the Swamp Monster, while that is not necessarily a, a Bigfoot per se, but that was another that I always loved. And I, again, I, you probably see a theme. There's these kind of swampy, scary Bigfoot stories. And those were always the ones that I loved the most, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty fun for sure. Yeah. Momo, Momo's a great story. Uh, although that poor dog, right? <laughs> right. The, the bloody dog. It's like, yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Peter would Peter would have a problem with Momo. <laughs> I I think so probably. <laughs> um recently I learned about um uh Area X up in Oklahoma which isn't it's in like the southeast corner which isn't you know it's right next to Texas. Um what's your take on that? Do you know about Area X and and the North American uh Wood Ape Conservancy? Yes, yeah, definitely. I've, I've been to Area X twice, and uh, I was a member of 
of that group for a period of time before it was the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, back when oh, it was the Texas okay. Bigfoot Research Conservancy. Gotcha. And the, that was kind of early on when they were starting to focus in on Area X as a place where, you know, they, it's worth the investment of time and research because prior to that, you know, they were investigating just randomly everything. And, uh, you know, I was kind of focusing on Falk a lot, but um, I think Area X, which may surprise some people that Oklahoma even has Bigfoot sightings, but yeah, <laughs> but it's the Washita Mountains. It's over on the eastern portion and the Washita's bridge over into Arkansas. And if you if you go to the Washita Mountains and just take a little bit of a drive up there, immediately you realize it looks very squatchy, if you will. And uh, Area X in particular, at least, you know, back 10 years ago, to get into there, it was like once you left the blacktop, it was about an hour and a half of a drive through these treacherous uh, dirt roads way back up in the mountains. And, you know, it, it was hard to get to and it was so isolated. And when you got back in there, you're like, man, there could be a family of creatures living up here and it would be extremely hard to capture evidence of them. Um, now, when I was there, I didn't experience any sightings or anything abnormal, really. But of course, over the years, all, all my colleagues there have compiled just so many examples of, of stuff. And I, and I I think that the guys in that group are some of the, at least the most diligent and intelligent and trustworthy guys. So the information they've released on this, in my opinion, is very solid. And, you know, I can attest that I've been up there. I know that it's a good area and, you know, this has a history of sightings, not just from what those guys say, but from people who've lived in the area, you know, outside of area X. So it, it's a great area. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's awesome to hear. I, I did not know that you were, you know, part of a preliminary group of that. So that's really cool. Thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah, it just makes me, you know, wonder when people are, are so skeptical about the existence of, uh, a large primate in North America, there's all these different areas outside of the Pacific Northwest, of course, um, but even like in, in Canada, there's so much wilderness up there and even places, uh, such as East Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas in the Ozarks. And then there's even kind of like a corridor going up into like the Northeast, um, United States and into Canada. That's kind of got a lot of activity going on too. So it's like, there's all these places that are so hard to get to that people just never go to like anything could be hiding out there. So it's, um, yeah, it's definitely very interesting to hear that. Yeah. I think that, you know, that's one thing if people don't have a perspective, you know, I think a lot of people who just maybe live in the city and don't, you know, maybe their vacations are not to wilderness areas or so forth, or they don't live in rural areas, don't really realize that there are still places where, 
animals can flourish and creatures could hide. It's, I mean, we're closing in, but it's not like this prevailing attitude of, well, we've, you know, we've just, we've explored everything, we've developed everything and, and all that sort of thing. There are these tracts of land. And if you were to get dropped in the middle of the Washita mountains uh, or in the big thicket of Texas or other places, you know, you quickly say, okay, there's miles and miles of forestry here. I'm lost without a GPS. I couldn't even find my way out. I could walk for days and not know where the hell I'm going. <laughs> and and creatures, animals are amazing. They can they can survive in these areas um, unbeknownst to us. And if you happen to get lucky and see one, so be it. But it you know I think it's a perspective thing that people may not have that you know this it doesn't have to be um you know the the 1500s where it's an undeveloped country that things can still live here and you know relatively closely but still be obscured from our you know everyday life yeah yeah absolutely yeah there's plenty of places to hide even close to civilization <laughs> Um, have you ever um, experienced or encountered um, any Bigfoot activity uh, personally? There's been a few things um, that have happened over the years in a few different places. I've never really had a sighting that was, you know, I could, was so uh, clear and definitive that I'll say, you know, I definitely saw a Bigfoot, but uh up in the Falk area, um, I did see something move between the trees that was red in color, um, which is kind of odd. I didn't see the full, it was obscured about 75 yards away in the trees, and I something had caught my eye, and I was looking over there, and this was like around 3 p.m. in the day, and then something walked or moved or something between those trees in an area where uh, it is basically inaccessible by foot unless you boat across the small channel of the bayou. It's not It's not private land. There's no roads. There's no nothing back there. In fact, I've been up there for more than a decade and have never seen a person over there ever. Really? And on this occasion, um, I was just looking over there and I was actually just kind of looking around that day and on my way to interview a woman who had experienced some howls. And uh, when I saw whatever this thing was, and while again, I can't say that that was the fountain monster or a Bigfoot or anything, the fact that it was red um, doesn't throw it off because there's been, there's been descriptions of that creature that the color varies from dark black to brown to reddish brown to even red. And the strange thing was, is about 30 minutes before that, I had been at the Monster Mart, which is a place there in Falk, like a convenience store where people meet up. Yeah. And one of the locals had said that he had seen what he believed was the creature um, about a week prior, and it had run across the road um, on a road I'm familiar with, and he said to him, it looked very similar to an orangutan. 
It was very orange, reddish in color. So, you know, and then I, about 30 minutes later, I literally see this red thing moving through the trees that I could not identify. So that was a possible sighting. And then there's been other things. I was once in the Ocala National Forest in Florida, in which myself and my research partner, Cindy Lee, were, were doing a night hike in the middle of January. There was no one out there. And we heard what sounded like somebody hitting on a tin can. Bink, 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 like hitting on it. I was like, what, what the hell is that? What? And so I kind of plunge off into the brush and something big, very big, gets up and sort of runs ahead. And I'm trying to get my flashlight on it. And of course, once that started, the, the pinging noise stopped. And uh, so then I kind of would advance with the flashlight and then whatever this thing was would get up and run. And the more it did that, the more I could tell it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a deer. Um, it, it, and I've heard hogs, you know, I've been around all kinds of wildlife. It didn't sound like something running on four legs or running through the brush. It was bigger and I don't know, kind of sounded like a person or something on two feet. I mean, there's yeah. bears down there, but it was elusive. So I kept going, you know, a little, you know, I'd move 15 yards further and the thing would run ahead of me and I never could catch it. And finally, I'm like, well, I'm going to get lost down in here because I just jumped in here and started running. Cindy was waiting back up sort of at the clearing. I eventually turned around, but, you know, I can't say it was a skunk ape, but something was evading me and something that was presumably hitting on a can, which later I found the can. I looked around back up closer I don't know, you know, it was just one of those weird things that something's in the woods and um, I don't know what else would hit on a can, you know, I can't even imagine a bear would do that, but yeah, it was a weird thing. Wow. Those are some pretty interesting encounters. I would think that like, if you're, you know, listening to this thing, that's, that's somewhere out there in the darkness that you, you'd eventually be able to determine whether or not it was walking bipedally or uh on on four legs like a deer you know <laughs> i remember being out in the woods growing up and and uh, a buck kind of just like ran near my friend and i when we were out on a hike and you could you know definitely tell that it wasn't you know a person walking uh and and then it kind of presented itself and ran right by us which was terrifying but anyway <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, if, you, if you're familiar with some of that and you've heard examples, you can kind of at least start to rule out what it's not, you know. And of course, deer is something very familiar and, and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, again, it's sort of a process of elimination where you can't necessarily claim, you know, I don't want to claim, oh, you know, I was chasing a skunk ape, but I'm like, I don't know. It sure sounded like it could have been to me yeah yeah something different about about that versus the other animals in the forest for sure <laughs> um, right yeah. and, and i you know I've, I've even seen bears in the wild um and then I've, I've been up in the mountains of new mexico quite a bit and literally have come up on bears and they're so quiet 
bears just are extremely quiet. You know, you just look over and that's there. It doesn't tromp and bust out of the forest and and run, you know, breaking limbs and stuff. They're they're a lot more quiet than you think. And you know, so so I'm even familiar with the way bears move. Yeah, yeah. That is very, very interesting. Well, <laughs> perhaps it was a skunk ape. <laughs> Who knows? Who I knows? like to think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, so Lyle, what's your favorite part about um doing cryptid and fourteen research? Well, you know, I like the process of kind of building a case and putting together um all the pieces you know, that sort of corroborate um, the sightings. It's, to me, it's like when you, like in the, in the Beast of Boggy Creek or Momo or any other case where it's like, okay, you hear, oh yeah, a couple of people saw this thing, you know, yeah, or whatever. Well, when you start really looking into it, you find other newspaper articles that have examples or you you end up finding first-person witnesses or or even, you know, the the sons or daughters of someone who had seen it back in the day and all this stuff. And you start building up that, you know, this wasn't just a couple of sightings. There was something going on and it could have lasted like in the beast of Boggy Creek. It's gone on for years and years and not all of it is publicized. You know, I mean, it is now because I've written books, but, but when you're kind of researching these cases and you never know where it's going to, go and it's sort of like a little web and then all of a sudden you know you you find you you're led to another witness that has something really cool to offer that almost supports what other people are saying yet this person didn't even know these people and so when it all starts to come together to build this story of a uh, of you know a, a classic story or even one where it's just sort of an isolated thing out in somewhere. But when you start building those pieces together and interviewing people, it's exciting to, to see the full picture of the story. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Definitely insightful. Um, now would you, what would your advice be for, for someone who wants to s- start down this, this path as a, a cryptid researcher? Well, um, you know, I get I get emails and stuff from people saying I want to be I want to become a cryptozoologist or or whatever. You know, is this a good career? How how do I do it? I'm like, well, you know, how do I say this? It's not a career. There's, you know, per se. I mean, nobody gets a degree in cryptozoology or something because you it's not an accredited science and and then how do you, where do you get a job? I mean, it's not like that. So my advice is if you're interested in this and you want to do something or contribute or whatever, is just do what interests you. That's what I do. You know, I just do this stuff and yes, I put out a book and stuff, but I just, those are something I want to know myself you know, you got to go with that. It's You don't look at it as sort of, well, I'm going, what do I do to create a career out of this? Um, I mean, I never even called myself a cryptozoologist. You know, it's just what people, 
the, you know, you got to call it something where we research cryptids and, you know, if you're not a podcaster or an author or something and you just research, well, you know, there has to be some title to quantify it. But, um, but to me, I'm just a, you know, primarily an author who an investigative journalist, sort of an Indiana Jones guy that can go in the woods and do all this stuff and, and also interview people and then also sit down and put together a compelling book. Um, and those books kind of perpetuate what I do. People, if if I can sell those books, I don't, you know, obviously not living in mansions or anything. I just kind of turn that back into the process of, of continu continuing to try to contribute the books for the history and the and just doing it for fun. So I think anybody who's interested, just follow your own passions, um, do what's interest you, and you know don't don't look at it as something you're going to make a lot of money at. If if you can write books and make documentaries and things like that, hopefully that will perpetuate you to be able to continue the research. That's about the best you can ask for. Yeah, that's great advice for sure. <laughs> um, Let's talk about um the uh the documentaries and and like television shows you've been involved with. You uh you did a, a pilot once with uh Ken Gerhart and you've done narration for Small Town Monsters. Um how has that all been? It, you know that that's been a good offshoot of of this, you know. I mean, I think Really, I, I like writing the books the most, you know, that's kind of where, but, you know, you need, you need to supplement that with these other mediums and with small town monsters, you know, with uh, Seth Breedlove and the, the group that's making those films, you know, I was lucky to be, get on board on their third film, which they did the Boggy Creek Monster and Seth came to me saying, well, you know, we obviously, for, for famous small town monsters, we got to do the, you know, the Boggy Creek monster case. And so when I got involved in that and lended my research and everything I could, and um, he thought, well, I should, you know, maybe you should narrate it just because you, you've got that first person perspective. And so when I did, it's, you know, the response was great. People love the narration. They love that style. So that's, that was fortuitous because I was able to continue working with them on, I think I've narrated about seven or eight of those movies since then. Um, and I always thought that was great because in that case, Seth had the vision for it. He had the visuals and the, just the understanding of cinematography and the rest of the, the guys that input with that. All I had to do was my part. You know, I wasn't the, I didn't have to muscle it all myself. And it was great to be a part of that and to see where that company has grown and what quality products have come out of it. And I'm happy to contribute, you know, whatever it, it is needed. The, the television shows, you know, are tricky. I mean, you know, because you get asked a lot to do certain stuff or you should, oh, you know, you get these production companies, man, you're the man, you know, we want you, you should be on this series and they, you know, butter you up and I'll say all this crap and you have to watch out because the TV shows 
are not like small town monsters. You have to, you don't know the credibility and the integrity of what they're trying to make. So you have to be careful because I don't want to be associated with something that's creating a bunch of BS or hoaxing or whatever it is, or run through the woods and act like you're scared. (laughs) Um, So I, I, you know, most of those, I just very um, skeptical of, and I'll try to do ones that I think are contributing to information or, as best I can. The the thing I did with uh, Ken Gerhard, this the American Monster Tour thing was sort of our own stab at like, what if we just did something ourselves instead of creating this wild BS TV show? What if you what if you just sort of followed us with a camera as we do investigations on a particular creature or area or whatever? And, and so we made a couple of those, but. It, it's hard to do a TV show unless you have some kind of funding and a team of people. And, yeah. you know, unless you're Seth Breedlove, who is that's your only thing, Ken and I are doing all this other stuff as well. So um, it, it, it was just hard to continue doing that because the original guy who was doing the camera and editing, you know, he, he didn't have time. He works for actual TV shows and stuff. So you know, we made a couple of really cool episodes and we all shopped those to production companies to see if somebody was interested in picking up the, the ball and taking off with the series. But, you know, we never, that, that hasn't happened yet. There's, there's always talks and stuff going on, but, um, but it was fun to do something where we, again, had the control and making something that we thought was had integrity and interest to the, to cryptid fans, you know, as opposed to just being in the hands of television networks where you have no control. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear that. That's yeah. Creative control is definitely an important aspect. If you're trying to have, you know, something that, that stands up to scrutiny and, and uh, really contributes value to uh, this whole cryptozoology thing. (laughs) Um You've also been on coast to coast uh, a number of times, right? How 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 has that been? Um, that's just kind of like you know I've grew up listening to coast to coast, so it's it's uh, <laughs> you know maybe some someday I'll be on it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, honestly, it's it's a it's great to be on the show because it's it's big and it's well known, and of course, in a certain sense. I listened to that and was influenced by it when I was younger. And it was like, wow, if I could be on that show, you know, I didn't even, actually, I never even thought of that. I just, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I got an invite to do it and I'm thinking, wow, this is like a full circle dream come true or something. But dude, you know, when it comes down to it, it's a show that it's highly produced. It's got 50 million commercials and all that. And once, once podcasts kind of started going, it was like, you know, I love doing these because there is nobody interrupting our conversation here. And you're asking, and you're familiar with all the, all of the subjects and what we're talking about and cases and everything else. And I didn't have to feed you questions. (laughs) Um, These to me are more, are more, you know, informational and and better quality than maybe what you can get in between five minutes of something between advertisements. 
but right. coast to coast is, is is the thing and what it what it is. So you have to balance that with with yes to produce something like that. They have to have sponsorship and all that stuff. So, but I remember early on they the funny thing was they I've always had a cell. I haven't had a landline since like the nineties, you know, and they were like, well, you gotta, we only do interviews from landlines. I'm like, I don't have a landline. I hadn't had a landline in 10 years. <laughs> you know, so I had to go to my grandmother's house who has this ancient landline that sounded terrible. My cell phone reception was far superior, but I'd go over there. And of course, coast to coast is the middle of the night. So I had to go to my grandmother's house and I'm over at 2 a.m. at my grandma's wow. <laughs> doing this interview in her hall out, you know, on this phone I could barely hear on. I'm like, this is the worst. But it was the only landline I had. I knew you can't go to your neighbors next door and go, hey, y'all got a landline? Can I borrow that at 2 a.m. in the morning? <laughs> Uh, so that, that was always funny as I was over at my grandma's doing these interviews um, years ago on coast to coast. That's funny. Wow. <laughs> I didn't realize that was how they had to do things. That's uh, definitely makes for uh, <laughs> a funny story for sure. Um, now you also, uh, you, you've done a lot of speaking at conferences. Do you have any uh, conferences coming up um, for this last quarter of the year? Yes, yeah, it seems to to be more and more of these great conferences and get-togethers uh, about cryptids. Uh, this weekend coming up, I don't know how timely this will air, but uh, this weekend is the Mothman Festival, which nice. I'll be speaking at. And then on September 24th, I'll be going back up to that area, to Virginia, to a to a new uh, conference in Roanoke, Virginia called Bigfoot and Friends, a cryptid conference where I'll be speaking. And then after that, the annual Texas Bigfoot conference, October 14th through 16th in Jefferson, Texas, right in the heart of the Piney Woods. That's a really fun one. And of course, this year I'll have the Texas Bigfoot book to debut in person. I'll really be the first time I have it uh, available in person will be at the Texas Bigfoot conference. So I'm looking forward to that. That's always a good one. Um, but yeah, it just seems like there's, there's a lot of these conferences and I enjoy doing them because you can get with like-minded people. You can have fun with it, you know, um, sure. You know, research is it, it, there's field research and all this other stuff, but, um, like any, great pursuit you know getting together with other people and sharing ideas and even at many of these conferences i've met people where i've gotten um some credible witness accounts that i wouldn't have gotten otherwise you know yeah, because yeah. <laughs> you know and then you're there in person you know you're not talking to this person over the phone or whatever you can you can judge the credibility of it better and so i think over the years a lot of these conferences have been very beneficial in gathering up some information that maybe these people wouldn't have normally shared and they feel they can trust you or know you or they're fans of your books and they will come up and share a story. So conferences to me have always been uh, one of the, one of the key aspects of this pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. Conferences are, are great. I remember going to 
CryptidCon last year in Kentucky, and I had a table. I was I was vending, selling some shirts and stuff, and and people would come up to me and and tell me their stories. It was very uh, a, a very cool experience. Um, now you you do all sorts of different kinds of conferences too, beyond cryptozoology, right? You you do some par- paranormal stuff, some horror, and and comic and uh, Comic Con type uh, conferences. Um, do you have like a, a preference of which ones you like to do more? Um. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I get invited to you know obviously you know when they're a Bigfoot conference or cryptids usually. Um, those are kind of a no brainer. Sometimes there's been paranormal conferences where they'll bring in different aspects of the paranormal cryptids and UFOs and ghosts. Those are fun because you can kind of hear some, some other topics. Um, I really like horror conventions because I've been doing these longer than any of it because of my band ghoul town, uh, kind of had a horror theme to it. And, and we would often, be invited to horror conferences that had uh, music or bands, or I just like to go to those because I'm a big fan of horror movies and other stuff. So it'd be cool. It's cool. It was just cool to be a part of it. Um, You know, and there's been some comic cons like Pensacon and Pensacola, Florida, where, you know, you're just hanging out with people like from Star Trek and, and uh, movies and other stuff that you wouldn't normally run across, you know, and you know it's just always fun because you just never know what what's going to happen or what who you're going to run into or what experience or conversation you're going to have and in some cases they they will ask me oh yeah you're the bigfoot guy or something like that or you know it's it's cool because um it keeps the life interesting so i like to do really just all of it it's it's fun to get out and, and meet people yeah no that's that's cool um yeah, I, I I understand you're you're a big horror uh fan. What would you say are like your top three horror movies of all time? Oh uh, yeah, that's that's always a tough one. There's so many good ones, and <laughs> right. <laughs> like I said, really since I can remember, uh, you know, maybe three or four years old, I loved horror movies. So there's been a lot, but my favorite. You know, I, I've, of course, got to say The Legend of Boggy Creek is my favorite all-time horror movie, if you will. <laughs> it, I mean, that's literally had to change my entire life. So that, of course. But uh, I am the other in my top would be uh, John Carpenter's Halloween, the original Halloween. Really, yeah. really come to love the simplicity and and iconic uh nature of that film over the years and the you know from the soundtrack to just the establishing of that the shape of the stalker the that like it's somewhat of a slasher but it's not a gory film it's atmospheric and um that's one of my favorites i love the shining um purely because jack nicholson is such a great actor and really elevates that to this sort of psychological horror um set in that you know, just the way Kubrick filmed that. So The Shining is another one that I really love. Um, nice. And then I just love the classics, you know, all the Universal Monster movies, the Hammer Horror movies, and I would say probably The Creature from the Black Lagoon would be far up there just simply because I love the sort of swampy, 
reptilian lagoon kind of monsters and that that's the granddaddy of all of them nice <laughs> that's awesome yeah those are all uh some pretty awesome choices for <laughs> top movies definitely <laughs> can't go wrong um i want to talk about ghoul town for a second uh since you mentioned it um i'm a fellow rocker myself i've got a band more in like the 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 punk uh genre um but how did uh how did ghoul town come about well it's kind of a conglomeration of everything i've been into over the years um most of the bands i've been in have always kind of had a horror punk theme and in some way or another and i mean i started as way back a long time ago when i was really young like in junior high times playing in actual punk bands and performing in the hardcore punk scene in the early 80s and that exposed me to the misfits um in which i re i just obviously they sing about horror stuff that's the first time i realized dude oh yeah you don't have to sing about you know fast cars and women and love songs i didn't i guess it never <laughs> occurred to me you know it's just like that's what you heard it's like oh you can sing about horror movies oh yeah yeah so you, you know i had a horror punk band back in like 1983 um when i was a kid and and then I eventually uh, played in other bands, um, a band called Solitude Eternus, which was on Roadrunner Records. And that was a doom metal band, nice. which did pretty nice. well. We were able to, you know, being on Roadrunner, we toured, you know, Europe and Canada and all over the place, U.S. And so in my starting in my 20s, I was doing, I guess, I would say professional music, but we they didn't pay us a lot of money. They they would put us on tour, but somehow we never got a lot of money. Um, <laughs> even though those records, <laughs> yeah, man, they've reissued our classic albums, and I'm like, you know, here's like here's 300 bucks. I'm like, this is ridiculous, you know. Oh, I wrote those songs, but um, Ghoul Town was sort of my eventually came to this idea of doing this sort of more encompassed everything the horror sort of the spaghetti western thing that i loved with my texas roots it was sort of a dark western had punk we're a little bit metal we're a little bit like spaghetti western soundtrack yeah anything is thrown in there at school town and it to me it was something that finally i did that had the uniqueness that the misfits had in their own way it's like ghoul town had the black hat and all that. So I, this band I formed in 1998 and has pretty much been um, going off and on ever since. Um, we did not tour like we used to. I mean, we used to tour a lot, play wherever, but um, I don't do that as much because I've been doing that so long. So that's that's intermixed with my monster hunting. But um, Ghoul Town does well, and that's you know, music is pretty much how I've made a living. Um, all these years so um we still have it going that's awesome that's awesome <laughs> yeah it's uh once you have so much stuff going on in your life it's hard to tour it's been probably about four years or so since uh my band has has had a chance to go out for more than just like a one-off show <laughs> but um what would you right, say you know what i'm saying yeah yeah what, what would you say is the best show that ghoul town has ever played Oh, shoo. Um, 
There's been a lot of really cool ones, you know. Um, I'd say the I'd say the coolest one for me personally was once we. This was back quite a few years ago, um, and we were playing in a big venue in Houston called Fitzgerald's, which had <clears throat> the shows they did were cool because they had two stages. They had it was a multi-floored level, so they would have a main act on the on the stage upstairs, which was a bigger stage. That sometimes we played as opening, but there was also this um, stage on the bottom level that a band would play off in between. So people would kind of go back and forth or whatever. So I was playing uh, that stage and we were playing in that night, the Misfits, which were new, reformed in the 90s. Yeah. The Misfits were my favorite band. Um, but I was in the Fiend Club in the 80s, but now we're the reformed. So they were playing upstairs. Um, and uh, we were playing downstairs and all of a sudden people start pointing. I mean, I'm singing and we're playing a cover of Ghost Riders in the Sky, Town style. People are pointing and I look over to my left on the stage and there's Jerry only from the Misfits on the stage had commandeered one of the backup guys, Mike's, and was singing along. And I'm just like, what in the hell is this? And uh, That's awesome. <laughs> it was just one of those moments where I was like, you know, I think I said, Jerry only or something, you know, like I just kind of went with it. But but yeah. afterwards, he was like, man, somebody somebody came upstairs and told me about your band and, and you know, said, you got to come down here and see this band, Ghoul Town. And so he, he you know, that's why Jerry is just came down there. Um, this was before they had played, came down there and just jumped on the stage right up. And so we became friends from there. and. Oh man, that's really cool. <laughs> and and later played, you know, other opening gigs with the Misfits and then later with Doyle, his his side his own band. Yeah. Um so I, I love those guys. You know, they're they're really cool guys. And uh so that that's one standout show, I mean, among other good ones. Yeah, yeah. You can't <laughs> can't get much better than that, having Jerry only <laughs> sing along right. Holy Moly. <laughs> right and that's that's how you meet him it's not like you know hello mr only or you meet him somewhere else or even if he's heard of you bet he's literally on your stage <laughs> that's, so I, cool. that's crazy that's crazy yeah i always loved watching when i was a teenager like watching old misfits videos from the early 80s and like jerry and and doyle are just like towering and commanding the stage well you know glenn is you know tearing it up on the on the mic <laughs> that's, yeah, uh, that's yeah. awesome that's awesome yeah it was just to me the perfect band and but of course those old videos god the audio is rough and i mean most <laughs> of them are I, I you know it sucks because there's not any more quality stuff but but you know part of it is the punkness of it it was like it was like a band of vampires in the punk scene i don't even know how to you know it's it's just was so unique and cool. Yeah, there really wasn't anything else like it back then, for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, which is why, which is why now they, you know, they they can sell out Madison Square Garden. Who the hell would think? You know, I remember they played when they last toured in Dallas through Dallas in nineteen eighty three. I couldn't go because I couldn't drive, and my parents would not let me out of the house. It was a weeknight, and I knew friends that went. But it was only like maybe 20 people showed up at that show. 
back then and I'm like I should have somehow snuck out because after that they broke up and then you know now you know if you want to see them you're going to pay hundreds of dollars at a giant arena it's like right uh, yeah I I regret not having tried at least tried harder to take my punishment and sneak out of the house or something Right, right, yeah. Uh, well, if if only if only you could, uh, you know, do things differently sometimes. <laughs> right. I, I did. I did see Sam Hain in nineteen eighty four, and spent about thirty minutes talking to Danzig, who probably thought I was some goofy little kid. <laughs> um, so I did just after that. I did see Sam Hain in a small club, but that was the closest I got to old misfits. There you go. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um. Mm-hmm. You uh you did a video, a music video and a song for uh Cassandra Peterson, also known as Elvira. Um how did that connection happen? Yeah, that was another pretty awesome thing. Um we were actually playing at a horror convention at Texas Frightmare Weekend and Ghoultown was doing a kind of an acoustic set at the at the VIP party. Um you know, it wasn't like a full-on rock show or whatever because those are in hotels. And we were playing, and uh, Cassandra's manager saw us play. She wasn't actually at that party, but then the next day I was down at our, we had like a table, you know, where the band was selling uh, music and stuff. And somebody ran over and said, uh, Elvira wants to beat you. I'm like, oh, yeah, whatever. No, no, seriously. And I'm like, Okay, so the next thing you know, here she comes over there with her manager, and uh, he had, I guess, loved the band and had told her all about it. Um, and so we got to talking, and she kind of, it was actually, she said, well, maybe, you know, you could write a song for me or something. We could work together, and I'm like, well, I can do that. I'm, I was a huge Elvira fan, and obviously, and and so we ended up, I, you know, came back home after that, worked up some demos and sent them some song ideas and we we this was kind of when she started doing conventions again she had kind of been off out of the light for a minute for a minute and uh so we did we recorded the song mistress of the dark and then she was using it as like a thing on her website and then we liked it a lot so we had a mutual friend that was doing uh, music videos and stuff so we ended up going out to hollywood and shooting the mistress of the dark video with her out there in Hollywood, which was super cool. You know, she's, she's great. And, you know, just it was fun to work with her. So that's, that's how that all came just from us playing at a horror convention. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) I love it. Um, yeah. Uh, so we're just about at the top of the hour here. Um, do you have any, uh, I, I know you just really, you're releasing your Texas Bigfoot book, do you, but do you have any new books or, or projects in, in the works that you can talk about? Uh, let's see, what am I doing next? Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's been a, kind of busy with, you know, getting together that book. Um, I have a few ideas of what's happening next, but there's no real definite thing for the rest of the year you know it gets real busy in the fall with convention appearances so i have a lot of that coming up and i i have been dabbling with 
writing some ghoul town material we haven't done an album since 2020 we usually do one every two or three years or so but that's pending on me having the inspiration to write tunes i don't really put myself on a schedule but i i have been working a little bit with writing some songs and maybe some some ghoul town stuff will come up hard to say i'm just sort of at this point just gonna <clears throat> relax and go to events and do some camping this fall and see what happens nice yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> all mm-hmm. right. Well, I've got one one final question here that I usually ask uh, all of my guests, and it's uh, in in the wide reaching Fordian world of uh, creatures and and uh, creepies and crawlies. Uh, what keeps you up at night the most, uh, if anything? <laughs> um. I'm not really, I don't have any fears of, of anything as far as creatures or monsters. And I will chase them in the woods. Um, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> right on. Really, the, the, anything that keeps me up is usually has to do with people, uh, people themselves, I would say. And uh, as far as the world of monsters, I'm all in, man. It's, there there's go. no fear. Hey, that's. That's what we like to hear. <laughs> well, um, thank you for coming on the show, Lyle. Can you tell my listeners where they can find all of your amazing works? Well, the best place to find out the information would be from my website at lyleblackburn.com. And I have an online store where you can get autographed copies of my books and t-shirts and other things. And you can also find my books on Amazon, of course, available in paperback, hardback and ebook. And uh, if you would like to see some of the documentaries we've done, you can uh, view those primarily on Amazon Prime. So if you just search Lyle Blackburn on Amazon Prime, those those will come up, the Smile Town Monsters and other things. Um, and you know, just, you never know when I might be on a television show, um, here and there. So just, uh, check it out. Thank you. All right. Big thanks again to Lyle for taking the time out of his busy schedule to hang out and chat with me about all of his endeavors. He's certainly done so much and provided a lot of value to the cryptid and paranormal communities for sure. So definitely check out all of his stuff. I'll throw links in the show notes for everyone, for his books, his music and all that. As always, this show wouldn't be possible without the support of listeners like you. Anytime you download the show and share it with friends and family, post it around the internet, it helps so much and it inspires me to bring you the best content that I can. And we're only just getting started here. There's so much more to come. If you're looking for more ways to support Strangeology, you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash Strangeology. And for less than the cost of a cup of coffee or even a candy bar these days, you can pledge your support and help out the show. I also want to give a warm welcome to our newest member, D. Welcome aboard. 
Some of the benefits of joining are early access to episodes of the podcast, as well as YouTube videos that I periodically publish, as well as access to Strangeology Beyond, the members-only portion of the show, which is sometimes a whole episode in and of itself. There's merch discounts, exclusive merch, even a cryptid t-shirt of the month club tier where you get a brand new Homestate cryptid design on a t-shirt every month. Definitely check it out if you're interested. And again, that's patreon.com forward slash strangeology. See you there. The other way, of course, to support the show and what I do here is to head on over to my merch store, which you can find at strangeology.etsy.com, where you can find a plethora of cryptid, alien, and otherwise Fordian designs, and I'm frequently adding in new designs there, so you always want to check back in to see what's new. People love the Mothman and Fresno Nightcrawler gear that I've got there. They're definitely fan favorites. Uh, but I've got a collection of Homestate uh, cryptid shirts with 60 cryptid designs and more coming in the future for other countries outside of the U.S. There's uh, a few alien and UFO designs and always just adding new stuff. Uh, gotta love it. You can get these designs on t-shirts, tank tops, long sleeves, sweaters, hoodies. There's also stickers, magnets, posters, pins, all sorts of goodies. And uh, again, that's strangeology.etsy.com. Your support is always appreciated. And don't forget to check out my website, strangeology.com, and sign up for my newsletter slash email list. I don't spam uh, people too much, but occasionally I'll send out discount codes or just provide updates with what's going on with Strangeology. You can also find my blog there, and at some point in the near future, I'm planning to bring on some blog writers to bring some cool articles for everyone to read. Uh, <laughs> I have so much going on that it's hard to keep up with, uh, with everything else. <laughs> so stay tuned. And if you're a writer and love cryptids and high strangeness and love to write about that kind of stuff, definitely reach out. You can uh, head over to the contact form on my website, or you can just email me at strangeologist at gmail.com or reach out to me uh, via Instagram. Experiencers, if you have stories about your encounters with cryptids, creatures, and the unknown, and want to share your story to potentially be featured on a future episode of the Strangeology podcast, you can call the Strangeology hotline at 802-448-0612, and please leave a detailed message. The voicemail has a three-minute time limit, but if your story goes on longer, just call back and pick up right where you left off until the story is complete. I'd love to hear your stories. So again, that's 802-448-0612. And finally, don't forget to follow me over on all of my social media accounts for more content, giveaways, memes, and more. You can find me mainly on Instagram and TikTok, but I'm also on Facebook and Twitter as well. And all those links, as always, will be in the show notes. Okay, well, that's it from me for now. For Patreon members, stick around after the short break. Lyle had a few more minutes to chat, and uh, we get into the creepy 
the crawly, and the creatures that may be out there in the swamplands of America. So until next time, take care of yourselves and each other and keep it strange. Welcome back, everyone, to Strangeology Beyond, your members-only segment of the Strangeology podcast. So, Lyle, thanks for hanging out for a little bit longer. I know you're anxious. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.